you're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome, go-to-market leaders. Have you heard about Inbound coming up again in 2021? There are over 70,000 global attendees that's going to come in for marketing, sales, and customer success. Should be fun. If you don't know Inbound, Inbound is hosted with love by HubSpot, and I'm again partnering up with them this year to share the love across the board. So if you want to grab your ticket, you are in the right in place. I have a code for you. It's called Future CMO. You get 15% off and you can register for uh, the LinkedIn conference. Again, the show notes, you'll have all the details. Go to inbound.com, register, use the code Future CMO. It is one of the best events that happen on the planet. Boom. Sangram here. Today, uh, as you know, we're, we're having a conversation with April Dunford on product positioning. So that's going to be fun. Here is something layover on my face, literally, the graphic for it. And we produce this and put it on Flip My Flip Podcast. So if you get a chance to get on it, you, you, you'll listen in a few weeks. Then actually, I'm super excited also about having Tim Elmore. Tim, he has been helping. He's the CEO of Growing Leaders. And he is recognizing that there's a lot of times where in your organization, you're actually leading millennials, Generation Z, boomers, next generation. So how do you lead all of that? So we're going to dig into that um, in a couple of weeks. And then uh, a good friend of mine, Deanna, we are going to do another really cool story on how she's the CMO of Televerde. And they give second chances to, to over, they have so far over 200,000 incarcerated women to be part of employment and have jobs for them. Uh, while they're there and then while they come out. So what is the role as a CMO, but also the stories of second chances? I think we all look, look for second chances. That's, that's pretty fun. And, and then just one last one, just to throw out there a few more, but there's a link there where you can just sign up for all of them with just one click. So you get to do it. Andy Stanley, he's one of my pastors over here in Atlanta. He wrote another book. He's written like 20 books. He's written one more that talks about the five questions to help you make better decisions and fewer regrets. And one of the things Andy talks about in this book is about what's your story? What, what, what's the story you're going to write for yourself in life? And a lot of times when you ask that question, you start making decisions in a better mode, in a better view, because it's not right now. You don't have to make those decisions right away. And that decision, maybe it's not that big, or maybe it's too big for you to make that hastily. So I'm excited for a lot of those things. So with that, I'm going to bring in one and only April Dunford. April, how are you doing? Hello. Good to see you. Good to see you. As you can see, there are a bunch of folks are just uh, joining in, uh, dropping in right now. Kaleem, Shabazz, Alex, Matt, Jen. So good to see you. A lot of people have a lot of interest in this topic of positioning. And one of the things before we get into your, your topic, I've always felt, uh, April, is that if you don't position yourself well, somebody else will position you. Yeah. In Right. And, and, and that goes for your product. That goes for your company. That goes for your personal career as well. So I think positioning is a way bigger topic than just a product, uh, although we might focus on that today. But I think you made that sure in one of your talks. So, April, I'm just going to embarrass you for a minute and share a little bit about yourself and then you can add more um, things to it. But uh, I've listened to several of the talks. I've finished reading her book, Obviously Awesome, which I think everybody should go check it out if you're in marketing. Uh, I've also read uh, in 1980, the book Positioning. This was my personal, this is one of my personal favorite still today. Uh, so I think people should check that out. But you've worked for like seven or maybe eight different startups. You have uh, been in five multinational companies. So you've done positioning for them. You have been part of six or seven acquisitions in the last 10 years or so. And you have done over, I think, over 15 or 16 product launches. So you know what it means and how you think about it. So I love the fact that you wrote this book and distilled your notes into, into a 200-page book that people should take the time to read it. Uh, but what did I miss? What did I miss telling about you? <laughs> no, you're doing a pretty good job so far. Um, yeah, I spent, like, my background was I spent 
25 years as a repeat vice president of marketing. Like that was kind of my jam. Um, and mainly in startups, like I would come in when there was some traction, I'd be like the first really senior marketing person they would hire. I'd build a team. My job would be to grow as fast as possible. Um, and in six out of seven of the cases, we got acquired. So then you land at the big company, you do your thing there for a couple of years and then you pop out and do the same thing again. So I did that for 25 years until about five years ago, I made the switch to, I'm going to switch to doing consulting because I want to try something different. And now I am very laser focused on positioning. I, I only work with B2B tech companies. I only do positioning work. And so this is very much my jam now. It's just this little narrow thing. Uh, I love that. And and you've mentioned that in a lot of your talks and in this book too, like this is literally can make or break your company. This yeah. is one of those things that if you get this right, you can have a billion dollar valuation and you can go really big. And if you get it wrong, nobody would ever see you on a shelf ever again. Yeah, you just you just go broke. That's what happens. So, you know, my first, the very first product I ever worked on, um, when I was junior, junior, uh, I joined this little startup and we had a main product that was where we made all the money, but we had a couple of like other products and they were sort of like future bets. We were going to try and, you know, see if we could get some growth with a second product. And I got assigned to one of the future bets and that thing was failing like failing, big time failing. So we launched it. We weren't making any money. We were spending all kinds of money on marketing. Um, and uh, we ended up, based on some insight that I got from doing a bunch of customer interviews, we ended up doing a repositioning of that product, which had been an absolute failure for a year. We repositioned it, relaunched it with the new positioning. Um, and that product totally took off. And the end story of it was, we ended up, it grew really fast. We got acquired by a big company in the Valley. It continued to grow. I, at the end, I had this giant team of people. We were selling the thing all over the world. It was doing hundreds of millions of revenue. Uh, that company then got acquired by SAP. Um, and that product, 25 years later, is still in the market. It still lives on phones all over the place. It's done cumulatively over a billion dollars worth of revenue. And we could have killed it. <laughs> like it, it looked like a failure. It looked like a dog. And and that change in positioning not only changed the outcome for that product, but for that company, the next company, the following company, uh, for a thing that went on to live 30 years. So, you know, that first experience taught me that, that if you don't get this positioning right, it's potentially disastrous for the product and you as the person working on that product and getting it right is this kind of magic thing happens that has the potential to drive this thing straight to the moon. You, you mentioned in one of your uh, interviews as well that you don't have a product marketing background. You, you, you didn't you, like I'm an engineer, but like that's okay. I don't know why I'm in engineering and then I'm in marketing. You were the same. It seems like you have been put in jobs and you have to learn uh, on the job trying yeah. to figure these things out. Do you feel like that almost gave you an edge because you were like, like you know, I always feel like I'm so curious about it that I don't have any baggage on me. I don't have the four P's on my head to figure out exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I had this thing because because I got put in a job that I had no business getting. Like, so you know, I started. So I have a degree in systems design engineering, and I went to sort of the fancy engineering school in Canada, right? So I, you know, I think I'm pretty hot stuff. Like, I graduate, I get this job at product marketing, um, but like I said, the, the the product I work on worked on grew really fast. We got acquired. By this big company in Silicon Valley, like doing two billion revenue, and we were the hot product inside there, so we were growing like crazy. Anyways, my boss quit, and I was like standing in the right office at the right time, and they're like, "Who should run this thing?" You, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so they put me in charge of this team, and I had like right out of the gate, I think I had forty people, which is big for a marketing team. I had forty people. I had tens of millions of bucks worth of budget, and I couldn't spell marketing. But I had this idea, like, how hard could it be? You know, we'll figure it out. <laughs> it can't be that hard. Uh, and so, but I felt like I had to catch up on the fundamentals. Like, I was always, I was the person standing in the room going, why? 
So we're going to run these ads. Why are we running ads? Why? And who are they for? And what are we doing? Why? And so I was always that person driving everyone crazy. And I kept thinking for this positioning thing, I kept thinking, you know, it's so fundamental, right? This clarity around who do we compete with? How are we different? What's our value? Who are we going after? We need to have super clarity on that before we can do anything in marketing. Yeah. It's underpinning. And yet, when I'm asking, well, what's our positioning? How do we get to that? I'm getting all these blank stares. And at first I thought, well, I'm just, I just haven't taken the right course or read the right book, right? So I read that book that, that you read, right? Positioning Battle for Your Mind, Rise and Trend. Everybody's read that book. And that book is a masterful piece of content marketing. Like what it actually does, it does this amazing job of defining what positioning is. Uh, and it gets you really excited about it. And at the end, you're like, I believe it. Let's do it. Come on. And then, and then it ends. Like it doesn't tell you how to do it. Like you get to the end and you're like, okay, so now I got to go do it. What do I do? And, and what you're supposed to do is call them, right? They, they ran an agency and you were supposed to call them and they do it for you. But I was always working at startups and we don't have any money to do that. Uh, and, and these guys were working for Coke and stuff. And it costs a quarter million dollars to even get them to pick up the phone. So I wasn't going to work with them. So, and, it, you know, eventually I came to the realization that we don't have a methodology for this. All the smart marketers I know are doing positioning but we're all just kind of mucking our way through it. And that seemed wrong to me in my little engineering brain. I was like, here we've got this really fundamental, the strategic underpinning of everything we're going to do in marketing, and we're just going to kind of make it up. Yeah. No, like there must, be, there must be a methodology that can at least give us some uh, confidence that the positioning we've gotten to is the best possible positioning we could do right now. And so... That sort of became my thing. Like I spent five or six years piecing together a methodology that would work repeatedly to do that. And then towards the end of my career as a vice president of marketing, that's why you hired me because I could come in and say, you know what? I think your positioning is weak and you know what else? I think I can fix that. And no one else could come in and say that. <laughs> At least for the methodology. I mean, there's lots of people doing positioning. So that sort of became my thing. And now that's what I do as a consultant, right? I'm trying to teach people how to do this methodology so that we're not just making it up or mucking around with it or just trying stuff out. We're actually getting to something that follows a logical flow so that we're wasting as little time as possible trying to figure it out. Well, the good here's the other good thing for based on like you just start figuring out because now you're getting a ton of fans. Like there you go, people like Michael McKinney saying, "Love April Dunford, huge fan." Your book and the other book, the positioning book over here, that people should yeah. absolutely check in. And people are there from all over the world, as you can see, from San Jose to Denmark to Europe to India to. New York to all the places. So I do a lot of work in Europe right now because it's so easy because I don't have to get on a plane. For speakers and authors, this is actually becoming a good thing because you're not wasting all the time in the world for that one hour or a three hour work. Um, talk, talk to me about April. And, and folks, just drop in any questions you have because in three or four questions, I'm going to just pull up your questions. So if you have a question that's burning in your mind. If you read the book or have question positioning, just drop in. I'll just pull your question up and we'll just get uh, directly from April what her thoughts are. But I would love, April, for you to share what are the traps for people to get in? Because you wrote that in the book. There are a couple of traps that you mentioned in the book. And I feel like that's what happens nine out of 10 times to most people because when companies are like founder-led like I am, oh, this is our positioning and I would think this is the best thing. And I'm, right. this is just my... Uh, exuberance around it because I'm excited about it. And you met, meet a lot of founders and CEOs that this is our positioning, but in many ways, it may not be the right thing. And there are a lot of traps around it. So before we go back to your definition of positioning um, and on examples that you share in the book and others that you're seeing right now, what are some of the traps that people fall in that you want to take them out of? Yeah. So, you know, the biggest mistake that I see when I'm working with companies and their positioning, like the, the most common one is, you know, positioning is not very well understood. And so uh, people tend to fall into this kind of default positioning. Like, yeah. and, and it works like this, you know, founder gets up in the morning and says, 
human sucks email. I hate it. <laughs> I wish there was better email or, you know, or they wake up and say, you know, CRM, it's terrible. We have to be able to do better than this. And they get an idea for how they're going to take something that really bugs them and they're going to build a better version of it. And so, you know, they work on it, they get it out, they put it in front of customers, customers muck with it, they, they take things away, they add things to it. At the same time, the whole market is changing, you know, like it used to be there's just email and now there's chat and there's team collaboration and there's all these other things. And you fast forward a couple of years and you're, you, because you set out to build email, you're like, I've got this thing and it's email. What else could it possibly be? <laughs> but your customers that are seeing it for the first time are like, I don't know, man, you're calling it email, but it's, it's kind of like chat and it doesn't do a bunch of things I expect email to do. And it does a bunch of things that I don't expect email to do. And I don't know what this thing is. So I'm going to ignore it because it must be stupid. <laughs> and so this happens. So you have this idea of it and it's based on his history and what you set out to build. But it's not necessarily the best positioning to put your product in context for customers today. So that's the first one. And then the second one is like when when folks do go to do positioning, you get this problem, which was the problem that I had at the beginning of my career, is you could recognize that the positioning was soft, but there was no methodology to fix it. (laughs) <laughs> so you know so if i don't know how to fix it how do i get about how do i go about getting better positioning and that often happens by you know either somebody in the company just decides or uh, you know there's all kinds of ways to do it that aren't based on a methodology like let's just ask the customers what we are they'll tell us or um you know we'll just we'll just go to sales and sales will tell us what works and the reality is that Everybody in the company has something to add to your positioning, but alone they cannot figure this out. And without a methodology, we're going to get to something. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. It it might sound great inside the office, but when we take it outside, it doesn't necessarily win. So first of all, we we can't fall into this trap of sort of default positioning. And then secondly, if we're going to fix it, we actually have to fix it using a step-by-step methodology that has a bit of rigor to it that that is based on what's working for us in the market right now. This one, Mudassar, who is in the peak community, he's in the emerging CMO group. He, he's just asking the question that you just, just talked about. It's like, with so many templates and frameworks out there, why do most of us still suck at positioning? And maybe you can point to something that's out there. I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> I'm going to tell, I, I know the answer to this question. And it's the reason why I sucked at positioning for a long time. So, so we, so you go to marketing school and they say, okay, we're going to learn about positioning. You read the reason travel book. And what that book tells you is what positioning is all about, why it's important. And there's a whole bunch of case studies. And in the case studies, they almost make it sound like they genius their way into it. Right. Yep. You know, we used our genius. it, It just, it came to us in a dream. And this is how, you know, and then look, it worked. It's amazing. And that worked well for them because they're trying to sell their services. You know, we're going to go do it for you. So we should go to the people that have the right dreams. So, uh, but, but for me, trying to figure out how to do it, I was like, well, what if I can't go to them? How do I do it myself? And so I kept taking classes and reading books. And finally, I took this class like, um, at uh, Northwestern University, right? That's where the right. So I so I took the class because people kept telling me I was taking class. I'm Canadian, so I kept taking classes at like University of Toronto. Americans were like, no, 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 you're go- you're taking the wrong classes. <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay, I'll take the one from Northwestern. So I went to Northwestern for taking this class. Professor comes out, and there's a module on positioning, and I'm like. All right, I'm at the best school in the world with the best guy, whatever. I'm going to learn how we do this positioning thing. We're going to get it done right now. Can't wait. Going to the class, guy comes in and he says, okay, here's how we do it. Uh, We've got this thing. It's called the positioning statement. And it's this mad libs fill in the blanks thing. We are a blank that does blank, unlike blank. Uh, that provides blank and blankly blank blank. And you're filling in and there's these blanks and the blanks are like, you know, what's my, what's my value? Who are my competitors? What's my market category? All that stuff. 
Yeah. I'm sitting at the back of the room. And at this point, I've already repositioned like three, four products at this point. So I'm at the back of the room and this guy's saying, telling me this is how we're supposed to do it. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. There's a blank that says market category. And I had just repositioned a product that we thought it was desktop productivity software. And we repositioned it as an embeddable database for mobile devices. Pretty different. Right. <laughs> right? So there's a blank there that says market category. And I'm like, how do I know what you put in the blank? So I got explaining this thing, right? Explaining the whole thing. And he gets to the end and he moves on to the next topic. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, so I'm in the back. I mean, you don't have that person with their hand up. Why? So I got my hand up and the, and the guy says, you, you at the back. And I said, well, look, there's a blank there. It says market category. And as far as I can tell, every product I've ever worked on could be positioned in multiple market categories. So how do I know what the best one is? And you know what the guy says to me? The guy gave me this whole professor thing. Like, like he, he has glasses on and he was like, who said that? You know, and I'm like, beat me with the back, you know, he's got his glasses on and he's like, and I said, how do you know? How do you know? Like you got the thing and I could, it could be this or it could be that. Like, how do you know what's the best one? And he did this thing where he put his glasses down and he goes, trust me, April, you'll just know. Oh, wow. And I was like, this is why we suck at it. This is why we suck at it. Because we think it comes to us in a dream and it doesn't. <laughs> that is no way to do anything in marketing. But there are people, very smart people in very smart places teaching people that the best answer is the first one that pops into your head and all you got to do is write it down to make it so and that is just not true in my experience so i think that's why we stink at it and i think you come out of marketing school feeling like you should have this and it should just come to you and, and maybe you're a little bit embarrassed when it doesn't and you're like, well, you know, the guy told me I was going to just know. So I just need to pick one and stick it. And that, that's definitely not true. So I, I blame that positioning statement thing. That's my. <laughs> well, what you're talking about is that if you're a demand gen and, and, and you know, folks, if you're in demand gen, just you t tell what your role is in marketing. So we get to know what, what's the makeup of the group that's listening to it right now. If you're a demand gen, product marketing. Uh, what whatever role you have, CML, uh, fractional CMOs, there's a lot of a lot of folks on this one. So just drop in your role so we get to know what type of roles are we talking about. What's interesting is if you hire a demand gen person today, which is what what is typically the first person that most companies hire is like, right? Like you know, like, hey, we know what we're doing. We just need somebody to create ads and messaging and email and put it out there so we the world will know we have arrived. Right. And, and that's typically I don't see a lot. And you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't see a lot of companies hiring a positioning person or somebody in that role to come in and do it. It's very easy to look at the MQL, SQL and all the metrics that goes in. But it almost is like you can touch them, feel them. But position is hard. And so it's like, well, I don't know. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So this is so this is a problem. Right. So so and, and, and here's how it works. Like in the early phase of my career, before I had this figured out, I would get hired as the vice president of marketing. And as far as I was concerned, my job was to weave marketing magic. Right. So it wasn't my job to decide whether or not your thing was a productivity tool or an embeddable database for mobile devices. That's not my job. My job is you tell me what it is. You tell me who we're going after. You tell me whatever. I'm going to work my marketing magic on it. Yeah. And revenue will appear. <laughs> right? so, so as far as I'm concerned, that's my job. I'm going to be expert at tactics. I'm going to be expert at execution. You give me the inputs. And then, and then I'm going to work the magic. And the output is going to be rainbows and unicorns. Right? But what happened was, you know, I get this product that's a stinker. Right. And, and basically what, you know, what's coming into the system is poo. And, and I'm just polishing it up. <laughs> and all I'm doing is polishing, polishing, polishing. And I'm up all night and I'm up all day and I'm running campaigns that don't work. And I'm delivering messaging that doesn't work. And I'm going to trade shows and no one wants to talk to me. And I'm a great marketer. And all my stuff is not working. Yeah. And what I finally decided is like, it's not my job. No one wants it to be my job, but I can't do my job until I fix that. 
because yeah. the inputs are bad, the outputs are bad. If it's junk coming in, it's junk coming out. And so then I then I was like, well, how do I fix it? Because I don't get to wake up in the morning and tell the founder CEO, hey, look, we're actually not a database. We're a business intelligence tool. You're good with that, right? Because I'm just going to go execute on that. <laughs> like, no, this is require me, right? Like, I don't get to make up. So what you have is a situation where marketing often feels the pain first, right? Because mm-hmm. they, they feel the pain and the weak positioning. None of my stuff is working, right? And you know who else feels it? Sales. So you go over to sales and they'll say the same thing. Nobody gets what we do. Yeah. Takes us five five meetings before the light comes on. Sales and then and then you go to product and they got a different idea of what they they might think there's a problem they might not. And so the next thing you got to realize about positioning is a decision around positioning is actually a very deep strategic decision. And marketing doesn't get to own it. Sales doesn't get to own it. But you know what? CEO doesn't really get to own it either because the CEO might think that, you know, the positioning is X, Y, Z, but if marketing's not executing on that and sales is not executing on that, the market is going to be whatever they say it is. So it's a team sport. So it turns out what we actually have to do to get this done is I got to get the CEO, head of sales, head of marketing, head of customer success, head of product, get the development people, get everybody in the room. And then we're going to work through, again, a process. We don't get to just make this stuff up, but we're going to work through a process. And what we need is agreement and alignment across the team on here's who we compete with. Here's how we're different. This is the value we deliver. Here's who we're going after. This is the market we intend to win. And if you want to have strong positioning, you got to get the whole team aligned around that. So who owns it? Like everybody owns it. The executive team owns it. But you, as the person in marketing, you often feel the pain first, and it is often up to you to drive an effort to even look at it (laughs) because you're going to have to convince everybody, hey, there's a problem, and I can't do my job until we fix this problem, so we're all going to get together and do it. But you don't get to own it. You might be the steward of it after people, after we figure it out. It's not static, so we're going to need to check in on it every year or so and make sure it's still good. And you might be the, the person that makes the meeting and says, hey, it's, smart. it's that time of the year again. we got to get together and do this thing. So you might be the steward of it, but you don't get to own it, own it, because you don't get to make unilateral decisions about it. Yeah, I think most CMOs and marketing leaders right now, and, and we can see, like, you can see the, like, we had Jen and, um, like, CMOs, VPs of marketing, product marketing, David Holler. Glenn, who is a CMO, Neon Marketing Director, Founder, uh, Shilpa, Field Marketing, Dirk, uh, you know, CMO, Product Marketing. You see all different roles. And, and a lot of times you say the product CEO, Ben, who's like the product CEO over there. Uh, Nicolet, you know, is the product marketing manager. What's interesting is, to your point, I hope nobody misses this. Marketing doesn't own it, but... I do damn feel that marketing's job is to facilitate it because if we don't do it, nobody would do it. And then they would be like, oh, try this, try that, try it, go do this. And it, it becomes a really, really well, hard That's why you need a structured process. You can't get everybody together in the room and have it be a fight about opinions. Yes. Because right? they would have the biggest title win. Right, right. Whoever's, whoever's the, the scariest person in the room <laughs> just to win that fight, right? And that's never me. I'm in the corner going, hey, maybe we should kind of like, you know, and my VP sales like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but which is why, like, in my methodology, what I was trying to do is I need a starting point, I need steps, and I need to do it in a way that kind that for as much as I possibly can, takes the opinions out of it and has it rooted in what's working today for us in the market and how do we really hone the positioning so that we're clear about that. And so otherwise, yeah, we get in the room and say, hey, let's talk about positioning. CEO shows up and says, we don't have a problem with positioning. The positioning is this. And everybody goes, hmm, okay. Cheers, Leela. Um, Leela, this is really fascinating. I think I see a bunch of comments, so maybe this just drives this. So Leela is asking, uh, I know there's no silver bullet on getting this right. Uh, This is a process, and I think your book lays out a 10-step process, which is really interesting to go through it. And I think you will see how it fits together. 
But what is the foundational work that you think startups, and that's specific, is that, as you said, like startups don't have, they don't typically hire, they will have, they, what do they do? Because this is a soft product positioning work to a strong product positioning. And a lot of times there's a lot of egos and words at that time as opposed to real work. Right. So, so here's, here's how it works. So, it, it, so in my mind, it works like this. So if we think about positioning, um, we may not be in agreement on how to do it, but we are in agreement on the component pieces because all of the work around positioning comes, you know, even the positioning statement has the blanks and we know what those are. So, so the component pieces of positioning are competitive alternatives, my unique features, which then give rise to my differentiated value. Uh, who's my target customer? So I need to know who my best fit customers are. And then the last one is market category. Like what is the market that I intend? So these are the component pieces. So yeah. if I look at this, then I say, well, how do I figure out the best answer for each of those pieces? Because if, if that's that should be how I can do this, right? I'll figure out the best answer for each piece, smash the pieces together, fall out good position. But here's the trick. Like when you start looking at the component pieces, the first thing you realize is each of the components has a relationship to the others. So they are not fully independent. So let's take differentiated value. My differentiated value that I can deliver for customers is completely dependent on my unique differentiated features, right? Yep. But my unique differentiated features are only unique and differentiated if I compare them to competitive alternatives. So all those things are related. And then if you think about it conceptually, who's my best fit customer? My best fit customers are the customers that care the most about my differentiated value. So I really can't figure out best fit customers without knowing exactly what my differentiated value is. So those things are related. And then market category, my best market category conceptually is, you can think of it as like context for product. My best market category takes my product and puts it in a context that makes this value obvious to my best fit customer. So I can't figure out best market category until I have value of best fit customers. So where do I start Mm. to figure this out? And so for me, I got stuck at that point because I could uh, start anywhere on that wheel and work around and get a candidate positioning Mm. and then go out and test that candidate positioning with the market. And if it, worked great i keep it and we run with it if it didn't i throw it out and i work my way around the circle again and come up with another candidate positioning but the problem with doing it that way which is how literally every other vice president of marketing i was talking to was doing it we were we were coming up with a candidate we're gonna go test it whatever problem is, is if you're in a startup you don't have time to do that very many times before someone fires you or the company goes broke or whatever and so and if you've got a long sales cycle because it's B2B, uh, mm. you know, it's going to take you a long time to validate or invalidate the positioning. So we need to actually be able to come up with candidate positioning pretty fast that is pretty good right away. And so um, for me, um, I spent a couple of years puzzling on that. Like what exactly is the starting point? And how I finally broke that was... Um, Clayton Christensen. So I went way down the jobs to be done rat hole um, uh, reading Clayton Christensen. And I had a bit of an epiphany that um, if if I had a product that was already in market and already had some traction, I could actually start with competitive alternatives. And if I didn't start with competitive alternatives, then what I would get is positioning that sounds good in the office, but it doesn't win out in the market. And so I could say, okay, I know who my competitive alternatives are today. Then I can say, well, what have I got that the competitive alternatives don't have? That gets me differentiated features. Then I can map those features to value for customers and say, okay, this is my differentiated value. Once I have that, then I can say, well, what are the characteristics of a target account that makes them really care a lot about my value which is a bottoms up way of doing a customer segmentation that would get me best fit customers. Now I got value of best fit customers. Now I can say, okay, in my email or in my chat, well, what makes the most sense given my differentiated value and who I'm trying to reach? 
That's how I make the decision on what my best market category is. The trick on this is the starting point of competitive alternatives we generally get wrong. Why, why do we get it wrong? Well, so, then, so here's how we get it wrong. And so I do these positioning workshops with my clients, right? So I got sales, marketing, whatever, whatever. Everybody comes in, it comes in the room. And it's like that thing where, um, you know that, you know that story about everybody's got a blindfold on and they're all touching a different part of the elephant. And the guy who's got his hand on the tail says, it's a snake. And the the guy who's got his hand on the leg says, it's a tree. (laughs) It's a bit like that. You come in and say competitive alternative. Um, head of guaranteed head of product comes in and says, We have 78 competitive alternatives. April, I've done deep research on all of them. Here they are, you know, and they'll give me these big documents, they go on pages and pages and pages. And then I've got the CEO who maybe did a lot of selling back in the day, but maybe doesn't do that much selling right now. And so they remember who we used to be fighting against, but we're maybe not fighting against that anymore, you know. So they got an idea about competitive alternatives. You got marketing. Who's, you know, they're, the marketers generally are worried about the other, the, the competitors that are doing really good marketing. <laughs> so they'll be like, I see these guys everywhere. Oh my gosh, we, you know, we gotta, we gotta be better against them because they're everywhere. And then, and then sales is sitting there. And what, what sales has is the most relevant information. But when you say competitors to sales, you say, who do you compete with? They'll only give you a list of the things that they actually fight against in a deal. Meaning, who else is on the short list? But if you go and ask the question, if your product did not exist, what would customers do? And the answer to that question in B2B software is, yeah, we'd usually have some direct competitors, but we also have status quo. And status quo is using a spreadsheet or doing it manually or hiring an intern. Um, yeah. the, other thing, the other thing we have is like monolith software that's in the space. Like I could just kind of do this with my accounting software. Socks doesn't have all the stuff, but kind of gets yeah. the job done. And so if you look at in B2B software, we lose almost, well, almost 40% of purchase processes end in no decision. And they end in no decision because people decided the status quo was good enough. So if, if, so you need to really understand who you're competing with. So a lot of times the positioning gets messed up because of that, right? So I get yeah. started coming to me all the time and they'll be like, I'll, I'll say, who do you compete with? And they give me this list, all these tiny little companies nobody's ever heard of, right? Oh, we compete with all these guys. And I say, well, how do you beat them? They say, ease of use, way easier to use, you know, takes 15 clicks with those guys to do something, takes two clicks with my thing, therefore it's ease of use. That's how we're going to win. And then you say, well, do you ever lose any deals to those folks? Like they're all, they all look really small. Like how many customers have they got? You actually ever lose deals? And they'll say, no, no. And I'll say, well, if you didn't exist, what would customers be doing? And they'll say, oh, well, uh, they probably just hire an intern to do it. Now think about that. You got positioning that is all around ease of use. Are you easier to use than the intern? No. Oh, the intern is the ultimate in ease of use. You're like, hey, Joey, give me a coffee, fill up the spreadsheet, come back when you're done. <laughs> but the intern sucks at all kinds of things, right? Like you, you beat the intern in a thousand ways. Like the intern makes mistakes. The intern does, can't remember customer profiles. The, the intern quits on you. Like there's all kinds of ways you beat the intern. But if you don't even know you're competing against the intern and you're trying to, you're trying to position yourself against some phantom competitor that sales never even sees, sees in a deal, yeah. that's where you're going to end up with some weak positioning. Yeah, I, uh, I see this way too often. And then being part of the ABM category, I realized, I think we were talking about this before recording, uh, is that in the early days, uh, they, uh, G2, and there was a couple of other folks, they were trying to put Terminus in digital, digital advertising. Right. And I fought them to the nail for first six months. I'm like, do not even position us there. Because if you did, we would not be able to build a category. How about this? Do not even... Don't even tell anybody we exist. It's okay because we right. will go new customers and then come back for six months. We fought and then finally they created the ABM category. And then we were, and we would actually come to them and say, Hey, by the way, if you don't think it's real, let me tell you, here's demand base, here's engage you. Like we brought in all the competitors to tell them this is a category because that's where we wanted to fight and not yes. in, a, in a 
big C of all the other things. If you didn't do that, April, I think we would have had a really, we would be a niche player rather uh, in a very, very deep C uh, where we don't even know what's going on versus actually working in a category because positioning in that is likely very different than position in a very, very, very crowded market. Well, so here's the thing. There's lots of reasons when, there's lots of times that you would want to position in an existing category. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't believe that category creation is the only style of positioning. Well, I agree. The thing shouldn't do it unless you want yeah. to jump in. Right, right. But, but there are cases where there's nothing else to do because literally any existing category is going to put you at a disadvantage. So the whole, the whole purpose of your market category is to help people make sense of what you do. And so if positioning yourself in an existing market category, you know, sets off a set of assumptions about your product that aren't true, well, then that's a bad market category for you. You should be somewhere else. Now, yeah. the, the interesting thing is, even if we are creating a new market category, that does not mean that we don't have competitive alternatives because hmm. people have the problem. You didn't invent the problem. Customers have the problem. They're just solving the problem in ways that don't look like competitors. <laughs> and so they're solving it with spreadsheets. They're solving it with interns. They're solving it with manual processes. They're piecing together a bunch of stuff. They don't even know it's a thing. That's why you're creating the category. But they are doing the work to attempt to solve the problem. And so you're positioning against that. And so category creation, non-category creation, and uh, you still have the work to do to get there, right? So the trick is, like, sometimes you can take an existing market category and carve out a space in there that is super attractive, that's going to help you easily make your number this year. And then next year, you just widen the aperture on that a little bit, widen the aperture on that, widen the aperture on that. Like if you look at, um, you know, people are really excited about category creation right now, but the vast majority of successful software companies are not category created. The vast majority. If you look at software companies that have gone public in the past five years, 92% of them position themselves in a niche of an existing market. The ones that do position themselves as category creators, again, it's fairly rare, generally do it when they're bigger and you have the opportunity to basically say, okay, I'm gain sight. I absolutely dominate the survey software space. So now I'm going to redefine what survey software means and I'm going to call it, I forget what they call it, but I'm going to call it something else. I'm going to make it bigger and I'm going to open your eyes about, you know, other things you can do, engagement software or something. Engage people. And by the way, you can use surveys for that, but I'm expanding your idea about that. The vast majority of folks that do category creation come to it later. But there's some examples, like you guys are a good example of that. Eloqua is an example I use in the book of, you know, Mark Organ very specifically defining that market and being the software that that emerged with that. But for every one of those, we you know, we've got 10 examples where it didn't work. Like, like it's... Um, you know, this is why we don't use MySpace. This is why we don't use Ask Jeeves. This is why nobody knows what a creative MP3 player is. It's because fast followers came in and killed the people that define the market. <laughs> it's actually much easier because now you have the advantage of seeing what's happening and actually coming up with a positioning that will set you apart That's in right. a building category. I think you're literally... Yeah, we were like early stage startup, actually three people when we started this thing, nobody even knew us. And it was the only way to get noticed because we were getting positioned in something else. But it's not something that, that I recommend. But let me ask you something that Christine put out there a few minutes ago. She's like, I had this question a while back that, I mean, it's lit. So I, I, I'm glad she posted it again. So if you have a question that I didn't ask, like just oh. drop in here um, and I'll be posting the recording of this in the, in the peak community. So you can check it out there. Um, a question is how do you how, how to manage positioning when you're joining forces with previous rivals? Uh, this is interesting, like GM and Ford on transmissions or techno- technologies and partners. Uh, for April is on strategic marketing, as our strategies sometimes require partnership with rivals. How does that impact cooperative narrative or positioning? Uh, you know, when we are not the only stars of our story. Yeah, this is, these are tricky situations to deal yeah. with. 
And this is where I think the strength of your positioning can really shine, right? You have to be able to describe, you know, here's who we are. This is what we do. These are the kind of customers we're a good fit for. This is the value we deliver to those kind of customers. And then be able to draw the picture that says, you know what? We believe in, so I, I worked at IBM for a while. And um, we, we had a lot of interesting partnerships with things and companies that we compete with as well. But we were always very clear on what the partnership was about. So we'd mm. say, you know, we, we have a super strong partnership with, um, uh, we were doing all this stuff in open source when I was there. So we were doing all kinds of things on Linux. Now, did we compete with Linux? Well, yes, we sell mainframes and we sell, we have operating systems and we sell those things. And so, you know, on the one hand, we're saying we're very committed to openness and, and we believe in choice. And so, you know, we believe that there are certain situations where you would absolutely want to use our stuff, but there are other situations where you would want to use a combination of our stuff and our stuff, and this is how this works. And it all contributes to our overall positioning around open. So we handled it that way. I've been at other companies where, um, it, you know, we would essentially say, uh, for example, we'd have partnerships with like professional services companies to help implement our stuff, but we would prefer to sell our own professional services if we can. <laughs> so we would go, we would partner with like Deloitte and we'd say, look, we're experts on our particular system and getting our system running inside a company like yours with all the other things. Some companies have an existing relationship with Deloitte and because they have existing software and existing things they've done with Deloitte, we love working with them. So if if you want to make the choice to work with them, that's absolutely fine. And we can augment them even with our guys and here's how we do it. Um, But, you know, so we have this kind of dance of, I think the main thing is you have to make it really clear. Here's where you choose us versus here's where you choose us in combination with other things. And this is the point of this partnership. It's tricky. I mean, I was at Salesforce before and I realized the level of partnership versus not. So there are tons of questions. I don't think you're going to get a chance to get to it. So, um, yeah, so what I'm going to do, April, I'm going to send you a link where you can comment if you feel like to respond to some of those questions. Uh, sure. But I'm going to summarize with three big ideas from this. There are several. I wrote down a whole bunch of them, but three. And I'll love, April, to finish this off with a challenge that you can give everybody who's listening to this thing. What should they do next? So here are my three big ideas. Um, Number so, one. You know, I think a good exercise is to kind of sit down and think about your positioning right now, break it up into the pieces and kind of challenge yourself a little bit on it. Particularly, you know, who do we compete with? Do we actually compete? Like, like who do we actually compete with in day-to-day in sales? Not theoretically, not who could we compete with, but who do we compete with? And are these our differentiators? Is this our value? If I started there and walked through, when I get to the same point, as I would if I just went and looked on your website right now. Like, are you, is, your, is your communication that you've got right now around your points of value, is it actually doing the job of differentiating you against with who you literally compete with in deals right now? And if it doesn't, how might it change? So I think it's a good no. exercise to do once in a while. It, it's, it's a great exercise. I'm going to do that, you know, for our own company and the community. Uh, I'm curious, like April, maybe one day we should do a live where we can let people in and pitch their company and their messaging and let you just, like, you know, if people are open to it and you're, you know, this is what you do. Maybe, you know what, it's not quite that easy. It's like, so people will come to me all the time and they'll say, well, how about I look at our, just look at our website and tell me the position. Yeah, I'm telling what you do. Like, well, I don't know, like, I don't know who you compete with. I don't know, like, I don't know. Like, I kind of got to get the whole background on it um, before I can before I can do it, which is why, you know, the work I do, we do these workshops and they're multi-day things for a reason. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. So people know where to reach April. I'll put the links out for your website and all that stuff in there. Uh, sure. But here are the three big, big ideas that I got from you. Number one, I think you, you brought this up really interestingly in the middle of it, which is that there are some ideas or positioning statements that probably sound good in the office, as you said, 
but they don't help you win the deal. And I believe that right now, a lot of people are actually in that state where they are in marketing, they, are, they have their founder or CEO or some, somebody handed down their messaging and they know it doesn't work, but they haven't mustered up the courage that in some cases you did, April, of reaching out and saying, you know what, it is not working. And I'm not saying I'm going to change it. We need to come together, sit down and actually rethink, reimagine this thing. So if they do your exercise, I think it's true. Like if it just sounds good in office and doesn't win deals, you need to do something about it or you're going to lose your job pretty quickly, uh, no matter what. Um, another big thing you said was that almost there was a stat you mentioned about like 40% of the deals are at, at no decision. And I, I, I think it's probably higher than that now that I think about the data and some of the stuff that I look at. Um, I think it's probably a little bit higher than that than what probably salespeople want to admit uh, to that. And what's interesting about that is, well, why is that? And that itself is a big question for a marketing team to go in and dig in from a positioning statement. Like if they didn't choose you and they didn't choose your competitor, are you in positioning for the problem they have or what's right. you, They chose spreadsheets. That's what yeah. they Joey, the intern over you. He's solving that problem. <laughs> and the third thing that you mentioned, and that was probably the beginning of it, which is you talked about like, you did something that I wish I would do this all the time and I, I try to do it, but I don't do it as many times as asking the questions, the why questions to get clarity on it. And it's, it's a hard job to go to your VP of marketing. And if you're a VP of marketing to your CEO, if you're you know, a founder or the board, like why? Like what is, let, let's just try to define it clearly. And it's, it's a hard thing to do, but when you people do it, I think people recognize that you do find clarity and clarity wins every time over anything that you can create that is confusing for, for your customers. So those are my big three, uh, three takeaways. I'll have more uh, in the community later on today. But April, thank you so much for jumping in and sharing all the wisdom. And if people haven't done this yet, go check this book out. It's, it's pretty good. It's easy to read. It looks like somebody just, a friend of mine just read it or, or wrote it down and not jargony, uh, which I love. <laughs> thank you for doing this. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everybody, for joining and asking good questions. Awesome. All right, folks. See you later. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>